This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of CastingAcross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. You are currently listening to the 201st episode of the podcast, so don't let anyone tell you otherwise. On this episode, we're going to be interacting with some of your emails and some of your comments to the website and to the podcast over the last few months. We call these accusations, even though most often it is questions and comments. I'm still waiting for one of those accusations, although I did get one. I'll put it, I'll, I'll, I'll mention it right off the bat here. It wasn't in the notes, but uh, somebody mentioned on an article I wrote about a fly rod, a review where the picture was of a fish in a hat. They said, you put fish in your hat, that's gross. That was their comment. That was the extent of their comment. And uh, they left their name as troll. So I'm going to assume that it was a troll comment. And they're, they they actually enjoy putting fish in their hat also. I rarely do that, but I forgot my net on this particular trip. So I put the fish in the hat. The problem was it was not a trucker hat, which are much easier for netting fish considering they have some sort of capacity for having water to flow through. So there's your accusation. So we're still going to do three other things I'll get to here in a second. And one issue may be even more uh, controversial than using your hat to net a fish. Not one issue, one topic. And I'll save that one for the last. That'll be the third thing. But before I get into the questions and comments from listeners and readers, I just wanted to, again, say thank you for 200 plus episodes of the Casting Across Fly Fishing podcast. Hopefully you enjoyed last episode. Totally different than what I usually do and having my boys on and talking with them. I know it is not standard podcast fare, especially in the fly fishing world, but uh, it matters to me. And so I'm going to do it at least once uh, every 50 episodes. So also, I wanted to mention uh, ratings and reviews on iTunes. If you haven't done that yet, just take a time and go over there and tap that uh, five stars and leave a review what you think is beneficial to someone who may take 20 to 25 minutes out of their day to listen to the Casting Across Fly Fishing podcast. I would certainly appreciate it. 
So let me get into some of the questions and comments. So the first one is really interesting, and it's something that I have probably mentioned in the last seven years in some way, shape, or form, but uh, this email reminded me of it. Uh, so I wrote an article called Bad Habits and the Same Streams, and I did that back in, it was probably July because I was in Virginia. And I had the opportunity to go to the same stream that I've fished countless times. It's one of the closest, most productive streams to where my uh, in-laws live, where I used to live. And I chose kind of on a whim, like as I was driving down there, to take a turn and to follow a creek that I know is in the special regs. It is a, a wild trout stream. It's just smaller, and I'd never fished it before. At least I think I'd never fished it before. When I was a teenager, I was in those mountains all the time, and I was on so many different bodies of water. Sometimes it was for fishing, sometimes it was for hiking, sometimes it was doing research for the park. So there's a chance that I am I have been on that stream before, but I had a great time, and it got me thinking, how often do I do the same thing, go to the same stream, fish the same flies? I, to be fair, to be honest, like Within 24 hours of this moment, I'm going to fish on a stream that I fish all the time. Uh, so there's there's nothing wrong with it, but you you might be missing out, especially if you live somewhere where there are a multitude of options in very close proximity if you go to the same one over and over again. And that's kind of what Mike said. This is what Mike wrote. He said, I spend most of my fishing days on the streams in Shenandoah National Park, and I've been trying to tell from your photos in the past couple posts which streams you fish, but I can't. Well, a little bit of an insert. That's because I'm extra, extra sneaky. Anyway, glad it was a good decision to fish somewhere new. For 2022, one of my goals was to never fish the same stream twice, although I've cheated a bit and broken up a couple streams into multiple pieces. Well, thank you, Mike, for reading and for commenting uh, and also for bringing up an excellent idea. So I had a, a friend and a mentor who uh, told me that for one season, uh, he only fish nymphs. He only fished nymphs. He had a couple of, uh, of caveats that he worked into that. If he went on a trip, then he could fish however he wanted to fish. Like if he went out of the state, he could fish however he wanted to fish. But when he was fishing his home waters and the, the waters in the, in the surrounding area, he was only going to fish nymphs. I think the other caveat was he had picked a hatch, like a trico hatch and like a sulfur hatch where he said, I, I, I'll fish dry flies, you know, at, at night or, or first thing in the morning. But otherwise, he fished nymphs. And you might say, well, that sounds like at this point, he's just kind of fishing how he wants to fish. Man was on the fish on the, on the water all the time. And so for him to say that is was pretty, pretty significant. And to me, I thought, you know, that's a little bit bizarre. Like, what, uh, what, what, what's the point of doing that? He just had a personal challenge. He wasn't, he wasn't advocating anyone else do that. He wasn't uh, saying that he was better than anybody for doing that. But he just made this personal challenge, and he carried through with it. And he said that he became a much better nymph angler, and he thinks that he caught way more fish uh, because he took the time and the energy to really dial in fishing nymphs. And, uh, and, and I think that was great. Another, another friend of mine also had the goal of, uh, catching a new species every month, catching a new species every month. So if you start off January fishing the ice and you catch every warm water species there is, uh, then you really have to work hard. And he said that by the time you get to November, it gets tricky, uh, October and November, the the number of fish that are available and the number of fish that are willing to to bite um they they uh they really diminish and so that was his little goal that he made for himself was to 
try to catch a different fish species every month um, and he couldn't repeat. So it's just, again, something completely arbitrary, but personal. And for him, it just added a little bit of adventure and intrigue into his uh, fishing, especially his late season fishing. I think if I were to do that in hindsight, I would do that like going uh, like summer to summer. But anyway, I don't think I'm going to do that anytime soon. I have done that before. I have done it with uh, fishing a new body of water every month. Not super hard if you fish a lot. I have done it with um, with with trying a new fly uh, every every month, new fly I've tied. Things like that. They're just totally little, and you kind of want to keep them to yourself. And I don't think I've told anybody, but for the sake of this podcast. But Mike's idea of fishing a new stream, or excuse me, never fishing the same stream twice uh, over the course of a year is a really good um, uh, idea, especially if you live somewhere like like where he lives in Virginia, I assume, where he's close to Shenandoah National Park, where there are dozens upon dozens of streams. So if, say, you only get out and fish maybe uh, twice a month uh, during the season, then that is more than attainable. If you live in the mountains and you fish mountain trout streams, then a goal like that, it's not only attainable, it's probably an incredibly easy thing to do in the sense that a lot of the fishing is going to be the same. So if you fish the the river on side X of the valley, then you are going to fish in a certain way uh, on, on a Monday. If you fish the exact same way on a Tuesday on side Y of the valley, you can probably employ the exact same tactics and catch just as many fish. Um, and and given that it's it's mountain trout, you probably can use those exact same tactics a month later uh, on uh, a completely different valley and do just fine. But I think what Mike is talking about and kind of the examples that I gave just illustrates that there's ways to just add a little something to your fishing, to challenge you, to push you. So I'd encourage you to do that. If you're completely content fishing the way that you're fishing, if you have the same canoe and the same uh, boat launch with the same fly rod, with the same popper that's been tied to it for the last five years, and somehow that knot has held up and you fish the same holes and you probably catch the same bluegill and that makes you happy, then that's fantastic. That even sounds idyllic. I, I, I'm a little jealous if that is your life. But think of a way to challenge yourself. Uh, we're getting into the end portion of the season. I know there's a lot of fishing still to be had in the fall and certainly through the winter. But uh, think of a, a New Year's fish resolution. And as I say that, I think that's probably the name of the article that I wrote, uh, or at least the idea behind one of those articles I wrote regarding uh, coming up with some sort of arbitrary yet personal challenge uh, for yourself and your fishing, thinking about it for the year. But thank you, Mike, for commenting and for not making fun of me having a picture of a trout in a hat. All right, my next comment comes from a gentleman named Ken. Ken has a nice long one, and I'm going to go ahead and read it for you. He says, I'm listening, currently, I guess, to one of your podcasts, and you're talking, currently, again, about repel bug spray, but there's much better stuff out there. I'm a TU president and live in northwest Connecticut on the western bank of the Housatonic River in Cornwall. And I fly fish somewhere around 260 days a year. First of all, that's incredibly impressive. Uh, congratulations. Plus, our TU chapter teaches fly fishing every year for three months out of the year. Also very impressive. Uh, Sawyer insect repellent and the yellow pump sprayer is for clothing. They also make a product for skin that come in a sprayer bottle or as a cream. It's made with permethrin, which is odorless and lasts on clothing for five to six wash cycles. 
For the skin product, I like the white pump for its bottle. I put a little in my hand and wrist, then a bit more in my hands so I can rub my eyes, or excuse me, ears, and don't rub it in your eyes. The yellow spray bottle, 24 ounces, should be sprayed in exposed areas of socks, pants, and shirts, anything that you're going to wear outside. Wear this stuff while fishing, walking the dog, working the lawn, or splitting wood, basically any time outside because the area is mostly woods. Can you mention in your show that people shouldn't wear thermosel bug sprays while waiting? Or the sprays are probably not safe to the water. Okay, Ken, thank you for reaching out and for sharing some of that information. So permethrin is great stuff. I think that in other podcasts and articles, I certainly have recommended it because the spray is absolutely the way to go when you are trying to treat large uh, swaths of clothing because uh, it has a semi-permanent nature in at least for, uh, you know, if you're using it over the course of the day or a couple of, of treatments. Um, it, you know, he, he said five, six wash cycles. I think it depends on, uh, how much you use it, how much you sweat, uh, the type of clothing, uh, and your washing machine's uh, ability to clean, but it's definitely worthwhile, especially if you are like me and you like wearing long pants and long shirts, you can cover it with that stuff. Uh, the, I would say cover the outside of it, uh, with that stuff. And then it will last definitely the day, definitely your, your camping weekend and maybe even uh, multiple wash cycles. My issue with permethrin and picardarin, the, the other one, uh, is that it can be irritating to the skin. You say, well, it's not irritating to my skin. Okay. It might not be irritating to your skin. I have folks in my family with sensitive skin. Uh, and so I have no problem using it on clothing. But at the same time, it can be a skin irritant. But anything can. The lemon eucalyptus stuff that I use can be a skin irritant. Uh, I prefer to use the lemon eucalyptus repel uh, because, first of all, it works. Uh, I have not had a tick on me since I have started using it, and I use it incredibly conservatively. Uh, socks around the ankles um, and on my hat and then maybe on my backpack. I don't. I just don't like having stuff on my clothes. That's really what it comes down to. Uh, I, I've mentioned this before. I don't like sunscreen. I don't like bug spray. So I cover up as much as possible, and I apply that all-natural bug spray liberally uh, on the places where where the insects can make headway. So again, uh, the backpack serves as a barrier for my waist. The socks, if I'm not wearing waders, serve as a barrier for my pant legs. And my hat kind of serves as a barrier for uh, the back of my, my neck and around the, my hairline where you're going to often find ticks. But by all means, experiment. So like Ken said, Give give up um, permethrin a shot. Uh, you can buy it in big spray bottles. You can get it on Amazon, super cheap. You can get it at the hardware store. You can get it at Home Depot. You can um, probably find it at like Bass Pro or Tractor Supply, and cover your stuff in it. Uh, I think this is a great idea if you have something like a a rain layer. Now again, uh, you know your your cotton, your wool is going to hold on to this treatment a lot longer than your nylons, uh, but it's still worthwhile and and worth applying. Um, and then as far as the thermosel, I have zero experience with these things. Uh, I've seen them online, but, uh, I've, I've heard very mixed reviews about their uh, effectiveness. Uh, anything, I think these are the ones that have like the battery powered, uh, thing going on, which, yeah, I definitely wouldn't wade with anything that was better battery powered, whether it be a radio or a, uh, bug spray, uh, uh, applicator. But uh, anyway, thanks Ken. And sounds like you get out fishing a lot. So again, congratulations and, uh, enjoy beautiful Connecticut. All right, the third email is a, like I said, a, a different uh, kind of, of fly fishing email that I haven't gotten in a long time. And it made me realize that uh, I haven't talked about this in a long time, even though I talked about it a handful of times, probably five or six years ago. It has to do with Tenkara. Tenkara. 
So Tenkara, as you may or may not be aware, is a Japanese style of fly fishing, a Japanese technique of fly fishing that utilizes a, generally speaking, a long rod, uh, somewhere in the 9 to 13 foot range, and a fixed line that is attached to the tip of the rod. Uh, and then it is various materials. Uh, the, the the rig I have is a woven nylon that goes down to a little loop to which you attach just traditional monofilament to tip it. And then you have a fly. Um, the There is a technique that is, that is associated with Tenkara. And there is tackle that is associated with Tenkara. So the tackle associated with Tenkara is what I described. The technique has to do with special flies that are tied often in a reverse hackle style. Um, and that also, usually, you have one fly. And so you focus on presentation. Um, and there are some dapping techniques. There are some dead drift techniques. There's a lot of that. And honestly, I have not spent a lot of time attempting the Tenkara techniques. I have used the Tenkara equipment. So anyway, the, the question came from uh, Jeff. And Jeff says, greetings. What are your thoughts on fishing with the Tenkara? Rod. I'm not sure if you've discussed this, and I've just missed it, but I'd love to know your thoughts. I was gifted a Mizushi, excuse me, uh, from Dragon Tail a few years ago and love it. I'm still a relatively new fly fisher, six years of experience, and casting the Tenkara Rod has really made me become a better fisher. Well, Jeff, I'm glad that you were getting out and fishing, and that's where I would say my response to anyone saying, what are your thoughts on X are? As long as you're being ethical, as long as you're having fun, then it is completely fine. So Tenkara has received a lot of flack over the years, and some of that has to do with the fact that it's different. I would say the majority of it has to do with that because it is different. I think there have been some Tenkara advocates that have been a little elitist about it, uh, but that is going. You're going to find that in in everything. I mean, what is fly fishing if not <laughs> something that is prone to people being elitist? Uh, and you even have the that kind of that cyclical aspect of it where the dirtbag style of fly fishing actually becomes elitist in a sense because uh, only certain people could actually be that much of a filthy trout bum. But anyway, um, I have no problem with, with, with using Tenkara as a as tackle or as a, an actual technique. Uh, I think the technique, it kind of falls back into that very first thing I talked about today, which is I'm going to limit myself to one pattern and I'm going to really focus on how does presentation impact uh, fish fish response uh, and how does my body positioning, uh, my, my uh, casting, uh, my casting to a certain aspect of the pool, whether it be the head or the tail or different parts of the current and how I can get my fly to interact with that and really eliminating weight and size and color and all those things. You're going to say, I'm going to put this fly in front of the fish because I'm a firm believer that presentation trumps pattern. I mean, probably over half the time, maybe, maybe 75% of the time. And so using the Tenkara as a technique allows you to do that. And by having a fixed line, it really forces you to think uh, and, and work smarter, not harder about getting in the right place. That being said, using the gear and then fishing, whatever, whether it be a panfish popper or a woolly bugger or a foam beetle, whatever it might be, I think that's great too. And actually that has been my preferred use of Tenkara gear. When I have been backpacking or hiking, I will throw my Tenkara rod and the little self-contained 
uh, line spool uh, in my backpack. And if I have it, I I have. Or excuse me, if I need it, I have it. If I if I don't need it, then it doesn't take up a whole lot of extra space. Um, and it's not like carrying traditional Western gear takes that much space. But it's just uh, there's only two things that I need if I'm going to throw my Tenkara gear into. Uh, my my backpack. And so if I'm out with the kids and there's very small chance of me fishing, I'm not out a lot of energy and effort throwing that stuff in there. And for small stream fishing, it really is all you need. There are some limiting factors that you're going to run into, and that's completely understandable. You would run into some limiting factors with the Western gear, although I would say that they are much, much fewer and far between than you run into with having a fixed line. But I have no problem with it. And if someone likes it, if someone prefers it, if uh, generally speaking to the action of a Tenkara rod is going to be a lot slower. Uh, all the ones that I've cast, the ones that I own um, are, are slower than most of the Western style rods that are seven and a half to, to nine feet long. And so they can be really helpful for learning how to cast. Uh, again, you're, you're missing out on a lot of dynamics because you are using a fixed line. Uh, and there are some benefits to having maybe a 12 foot or a 13 foot rod and having a, a incredibly light, supple tip of that rod and a heavier line uh, that you would with Tenkara, especially for that first 15 or 20 feet, where it is going to really let you feel that rod. Uh, and so it, you, you may have seen it, or this may have been you, when you learned how to cast, you wanted to peel off a tunnel line, and pretty soon those loops get out of control, and any benefits that you had or any momentum that you had in learning how to cast fell apart because you were really trying to, to punch a cast out there. Uh, it can be beneficial to have a fixed line and say, learn how to turn this over well. Learn how to feel the flex at what point do you begin your application of power as that loop is unwinding behind you and you push it forward? And then how does it lay down flat? How does that that line unroll in front of you so that that fly is, is hitting the water, not with more force, but very gently? How it is not uh, curling under itself and beginning to kick back towards you when you make that presentation. And if you can do that with that 13-foot rod, then you're beginning to understand the mechanics and the feel and what you should be looking for with a traditional uh, Western uh, fly setup. So there's absolutely benefits to it. Uh, and it's fun too. I mean, you, you catch a good size fish on a 13 foot rod that doubles over uh, when, when you're playing it, then there, there's a lot of fun in that. Um, I've not caught any huge fish on Tenkara, but I know people that have. Uh, but I've caught decent sized fish that put up a good fight and it is fun. Um, honestly, I get a little bit uncomfortable when I'm trying to fight a decent sized hard fighting fish, uh, and I'm in kind of tighter settings and you're having to, to kind of get cute with your gear. But again, that's just from a lack of experience, but all that to say, Jeff, thanks for, for writing in. Uh, I, I think it's a great tool to have in your arsenal, just as having like a one weight is a tool. I wouldn't do it all the time. Uh, just like having a two-handed rod is a great tool, I wouldn't do it all the time. Uh, having a Tenkara rod in your arsenal for certain as aspects of your fishing and certain situations you find yourself in is more than acceptable and may even be optimal based on you and where you're fishing. So there you go. I think we're past the point where Tenkara uh, is is the butt of jokes and uh, is uh, verboten in some circles of fly fishing. Hopefully we're past that. 
If you have questions, if you have comments, if you have accusations, whether it be about Tenkara or Bug Spray or uh, anything else, let me know. Matthew at castingacross.com. I'm always interested in hearing what people think, what they are uh, is on their mind as they are fishing, as they are reading Casting Across, as they're listening to the Casting Across live stream podcast. These things are always incredibly interesting to me, so I'd love to hear it. This week on castingacross.com. Monday's article, which came out on Monday, there's always an article on Monday, there's always an article on Wednesday. They usually get published around 9 o'clock uh, in, the, in the morning Eastern time. But Monday's article was called Killing Fish to Save Fish. So I came across a couple of different articles I've mentioned before. I uh, browsed the National Park Service website and uh, and their app, and it always has the news. And it's just an interesting way to kind of hear about fun nature stories and to hear about uh, improvements that are being done by at our national parks. And there's always the, you know, somebody got attacked by a bear, somebody fell into a geyser, things like that, which are a little bit salacious, but also interesting. And there was an article about a organized uh, fish poisoning that was happening in the Colorado River in the Glen Canyon uh, Natural uh, Recreation Area uh, in, this would be Arizona. So I clicked on it, and a couple articles below it is about a bounty that is on brown trout. Uh, 33 bucks a head right now for killing a brown trout. So I'm thinking, what's going on in the, in the Colorado River? And uh, you should find out. You can find out by going to my article, Killing Fish to Save Fish. It's interesting. There's there's a lot of facets to it. I scraped the surface of it, but I linked to some videos and to some articles about what is going on and uh, what fish they're trying to protect. And I think that you will find uh, it interesting to, to figure this out. So that is called Killing Fish to Save Fish. Wednesday's article is called Rusty Flybox Sucker for Marketing. So I write about gear a lot. Uh, years ago, I wrote more about particular brands and, and, and particular products. I've, I've kind of, I, I still incorporate that uh, from time to time. But uh, this is a series of articles about how marketing may influence you to buy something or do something. And that's fine. That's that's good. I, I think if we are we are overly skeptical of marketing, then we lose out on hearing about what's new and different and maybe beneficial. Uh, of course, we could uh, buy into the hype of something and be taken for a ride and end up with something that's popular simply for the sake of being popular. But that's not always the case. And so in, in three of these articles, I share some thoughts about uh, different uh, types of fly fishing different pieces of gear, and uh, some other aspects of how marketing influences us as fly fishers. This week's recommendation on the podcast are some hook hones. What is a hook hone, you ask? Well, a hook hone is a way to sharpen your hooks. And I have a handful of them, but the ones that I have turned to more frequently uh, are from the good people at Loon Outdoors. They have a traditional hook hone, which is small. It's about the size of uh, maybe your index finger. And they've just come out with, I'm looking to get my hands on one soon, the Apex Hook Hone XL. Now, the normal size one is 10 bucks. The larger one is $12. Hardly breaks the bank. You might say, ah, you can just buy a file for whatever. Okay fine and good. These are nice because they have the hole for um, a little tiny clip that they come with that you can put on your gear. Uh, they have that uh, loon rubberized grip so that you can grab a hold of it even when your hands are wet or maybe a little bit cold. And the XL, the the, the new one, uh, it has a larger channel, which I think is beneficial for really going to work on a saltwater hook. Uh, you don't need to spend uh, you know, like the, the amount of time that you watch somebody in a knife demonstration 
demonstration going back and forth, doing it like 45 times, uh, sharpening their knife. A, a good hook hone uh, and well used will um, sharpen a hook in like four or five quick swipes. And that has to do with angle and that has to do with pressure because you're wanting to create friction to uh, shave off that dull edge of that hook uh, point. And the groove in the Apex Hook Hone XL is larger. So I'm very content with their normal one. And so to have a larger hook uh, hone groove would is is only going to be better. So definitely check these out. I'll put a link to the I'll put a link just to the the Apex Hook Hone XL in the show notes for this podcast page at castingcross.com. But this is being recorded at the end of the season. If you have been using the same streamers, you have been fortunate. You've been using good uh, heavy tippet and nice strong knots, and you haven't lost them. Uh, they probably hit rocks. They've probably been hitting fish mouths. Uh, they've probably been hooked in and out of all sorts of stuff throughout the course of the season. They probably need to be sharpened. Even more so if you are fishing uh, for for bony mouthed uh, critters or or in the salt and things like that, I find that uh, under a microscope, I'm sure a lot of my saltwater hooks this time of year are looking pretty rough. So having that hook hone on hand is very helpful, and having something big that you can grab is great. And that's why I like the stuff from Loon Outdoors. Thanks for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe in your favorite podcast app and rate the podcast on iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com for three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish. Thank you.